Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. If you could say something to her now, um, what would you say to Barbara? Oh, goodness. I'm going to tear up. Hang on. You're listening to Season 5 of Dakota Spotlight, A Better Search for Barbara. This is Episode 3. This is Barbara's friend, Diane. Okay. Even after all these years, it just hurts. It hurts so bad that she's gone. But I would say that, you know, I love her and that I'm sorry that we couldn't do what we wanted to do and get her own place, live together, you know, just be friends forever. That's one thing I just, I just, I still miss her to this day. He tried to push, push it away because she was such a good friend. And then to lose that friend, I did, never did get another friend like that. So it's kind of hard to talk about. a route that like whenever we went to the theaters or there used to be a bowling alley downtown and an ice cream shop and or service drug we would go there a lot and get like they had back then it was 45 january a cold saturday around noon i've traveled almost three hours by car to come to this very spot recreation park near downtown williston north dakota i scheduled to meet someone here someone i've never met before. It's Sandy Evanson of Williston. We have things in common, I'm sure. Approximately the same age. We're both American citizens. The list goes on, I'm guessing, but on this day, I don't ask. What does bring us together in this snow-covered spot is Barbara Cotton, specifically the absence of Barbara Cotton. Sandy is going to show me exactly how her and Barbara and other kids would walk home through the park from downtown Williston. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> and then we walk to that corner there. To the northwest uh, corner of the park, which is We walk past the children's yep. playground area, a swing, a slide, hiding beneath the snow like frozen secrets, the grass crunches under our shoes. A few minutes earlier, as I crossed 2nd Avenue West into the park, 
I got that odd feeling. I was at the spot of Barbara's last known reported whereabouts, possibly walking in her last known footsteps. And then the questions start coming, the inner dialogue, some kind of internal second-guessing. Why am I here? What do I really expect to find anyway? Why go looking for a missing girl you never met? Will anyone ever listen to this story? Will it be good enough? Will it make any difference at all for me or anyone, anywhere, ever? And if nobody knows where Barbara went from here, well, do I even know where I'm headed? In the end, who are the true lost and missing? Are they the Barbara Cottons of this world who vanish into thin air and then are somehow done with it all? Or is it really everyone they leave behind who become lost? Those left to somehow live out their lives without any answers. People like Diane and Kent and Kathy and me and you. And Sandy Evanson, destined to rendezvous with a total stranger in a cold park in January where we skip all the usual pleasantries. No need to ask, how are you, when human eyes reveal the honest truth, those vulnerable human eyes that reach out ever so timidly and carefully when they whisper, I miss my friend, I feel lost, please help. Hello, dear listener, this is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes, get the episodes early, and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. And then she had these skinny arms, long skinny arms that hang by her side and kind of go with this walk. Her boyfriend watched her walk to Recreation Park, which is five blocks from her home. She didn't have she didn't have a boyfriend. And I feel guilty that we didn't do enough early on. Barbara never arrived at her destination and has never been heard from again. So are you telling me that law enforcement never interviewed you back then? Never. She was not a runaway. Last time we explored Barbara's reported last movements and that whole downtown dinner story with the mysterious boyfriend and Barbara's mother, Louise. We also asked ourselves, could Barbara have just run away? Among other things, in this episode, we're going to look at that police investigation and see if we can figure out what was done or what wasn't done. We're also going to look a little closer at Barbara Cotton and consider what risk factors were hovering around her in 1981. If you are binging this podcast all at once or over a couple of days, there's something you need to understand. Each episode you listen to corresponds to 7 to 10 to 14 days of production time for me, including more research on new leads, new interviews, second interviews, sometimes third interviews, and of course all of the audio editing. 
In your headphones, you may have just heard me say an hour ago, in episode one or two, that I sent questions to the Williston Police Department and I'm still waiting on a reply. If I say to you now, in episode three, that I'm still waiting on them, you should keep in mind that at least two to three weeks have passed. And that is the case. At the time of this recording, I am still currently waiting on them to respond, but I'm hopeful we'll get answers soon. In fact, I'll read for you now the questions that I sent them. And by the way, the Williston Police Department has no legal obligation whatsoever to answer any of these questions for us, because Barbara's case is open and supposedly active and ongoing all these 40 years later. And the North Dakota Open Records laws state clearly that those records are not public. On the other hand, Williston PD is not prohibited from sharing information either. It's simply at their discretion. I didn't ask for any documents at all, however, just answers to the following questions. Number one, was that third person at dinner Louise Cotton, Barbara's mother? Number two, what restaurant was it? Number three, is it true that the boyfriend took his own life, and if he did, was that in custody or in jail? Number four, was the boyfriend staying at the Plainsman Hotel at the time? Number five, can you tell me the boyfriend's name or date of death or anything about him at all? Number six, was the boyfriend the only witness placing Barbara at Recreation Park? Hopefully we'll get some answers to these questions soon. I did receive a response from the head of investigations there, and he said he would do his best to get us some answers. Another thing I want to tell you is that the detective who is currently assigned to Barbara's cold case is considering granting us an interview in the future. This is great news, of course. The situation at present is that he is out of state on training for a few weeks, but he's informed me that when he returns to North Dakota and has Barbara's case file in front of him for reference, he'll reach out to me then. So, James, you might ask... Why not just wait until the detective returns to North Dakota, get all the information you can, and then start the podcast season after that? Let me share with you what I believe are two very good reasons for not waiting. Barbara Cotton has been missing for 40 years. Obviously, whatever information is in Barbara's police file, it's not been enough to solve this case so far. One reason I wanted to start on the podcast immediately was to explore it with Barbara's friends and family without being influenced and potentially clouded by what the police might have on file. I thought it might be a way to approach Barbara's disappearance in a manner nobody else has before. Sometimes, once you see something in one way, it's almost impossible to look at it in any other way. I'm sure over the years, many detectives have reviewed Barbara's file. One might even wonder if they have been possibly clouded by it. I mean, it's been 40 years. Could there be something about this case that has thrown them off the track every single time, starting on page one of the file? Is Barbara's case unsolved not despite the contents of her file, but in some weird way because of it? I thought we should approach this differently. Another reason I don't want to wait until the detective returns to North Dakota is because I know from experience that when it's all said and done, it is far from certain that I will succeed in getting this interview any time in the near future, if at all. A lot of things could potentially get in our way. The detective might get swamped in a new case and be unavailable for weeks or months. 
Police policy might put a stop to it. Perhaps the detective will be asked or told not to perform the interview because it is an open case. That is a realistic possibility. And also, recently, I've had several interviews get cancelled and postponed due to illnesses. So, I don't think we should sit around and wait for another month or two, and besides, as we're about to hear from some of Barbara's friends and family, there's a general sense that they've been waiting long enough. Barbara's childhood friend, Sandy Evanson, has expressed this already once in the podcast, stating, Come on, it's been 40 years. Sandy has never been spoken to by law enforcement. I've thought about calling the detectives and going, can I just see the files? Maybe there's something in there that I see, you know, or that that us would see that newer or whatever that, you know, if you had talked to me, if you'd questioned me, I would have said, oh, yeah, that, that could be, or, oh, yeah, that never happened. Or The first time I reached out to Williston PD about this case was in June of 2018, which at the time of this recording is two and a half years ago. I emailed retired Detective Mark Hansen and requested an interview. Mr. Hansen responded and respectfully declined, stating that the case was still open and he didn't want to comment at the time. He referred me to the Chief of Police of Williston PD. I emailed the Chief of Police in Williston on June 27, 2018 and asked if someone on the staff might speak to me about Barbara's case. I never received a response. So I don't think that we shall sit and wait, but instead proceed forward. And I don't know about you, but if or when we get to speak with the detective, I'm incredibly excited and curious to find out how our information compares to theirs. And by then, we might even have some information to share with them because we're going to do some investigating of our own, starting in this very episode. This is a good time to take a look at the police investigation. Like everything else in this story, it is confusing. It's hard to know exactly what was done and what wasn't done. Here are some clues I've managed to compile based on statements law enforcement made over the years. In 1991, ten years after Barbara's disappearance, the man who was the chief of police at the time, Ray Atoll, retired from the force. In a news article about his retirement, Atoll mentioned the Barbara Cotton case, noting that the case had accumulated hundreds of documents and was still unsolved. In that article, he expressed remorse over not having solved Barbara's case and one other. He was quoted as saying, These hurt. We've accumulated hundreds of documents pertaining to these two crimes and been unable to solve them. Reward money remains intact. And in that Bismarck Tribune article of 1995 that I mentioned in a previous episode, the police chief at that time, Don Wentz, said the following about the case and the investigation. At the time, we had posters out and our picture on milk cartons, etc. We checked out all leads. We never searched the area for a body because we've had no indication that there would be a body. It could have been many different things. Based on these types of statements, it sounds like the Williston Police Department were confident that they had done a solid job on Barbara's case. Information online states that it was first believed that Barbara was a runaway and so a missing persons report was not filed for several days. Barbara's sister Kathy remembers it this way. 
I don't remember exactly how many days had passed before mom reported her missing. But yeah, I'm thinking it was within a couple of days. But it's unclear what Mrs. Cotton said to the police that day. Did she tell them that she thought her daughter had run away or that she was missing, as in perhaps abducted? Maybe it all got off to a really bad start from the very beginning. Through my interviews with Barbara's siblings and best friends, I realized that in regards to the police investigation, they are in agreement on one thing and disagreement on another. They are unanimous in their opinion that the police did not do enough. On the other hand, they are split on their opinion about whether or not people thought she might have been a runaway. And I'd like to point out that I don't personally believe that it should have made any difference why she was missing. But I have been told that back then, if a parent told the police that their child or teenager was a runaway, then the police did not put as much resources on it as they might today. And so, whether or not Barbara was reported as a runaway or not had potential consequences. Let's start with the first part. Did the police do enough? Here is her sister, Kathy. Nobody had ever sat me down throughout all of these years and asked me anything. And her best friend, Diane. Barbara spent all her time with Diane and wanted to move in with her and her family. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Makes me angry to this day. Talk to them. They never did call and question me, ever. Ever did they call and question me. I, I called the cops and I said, hey, do, could, do you want me to come down and we'll have a conversation? Nothing. No response. And her brother, Kent. Did the police ever talk to you personally? Back then? Not that I remember. They might have, but I, I truly don't remember talking to the police. Yeah, I'm almost positive I never did. I, you know, I forgot a lot of things 40 years ago. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't remember anything like that at all. I don't even remember the police coming to the house, to be honest with you. Kathy shared a bedroom with Barbara. Is it possible, because this does happen, is it possible that you were in so much shock that you just don't remember being interviewed by police? No, I was never interviewed. Do you remember the police coming into your home? No, no. Yeah, I, yeah, I still don't, I don't remember them talking at all. They made a look, they might have looked into it more at, later on in the years, but. And then when I got older, no, none of the ones that took over Barb's case ever called me, asked me anything. I mean, Lieutenant or uh, Detective Hansen, I believe, had brought me in. It was the year that my mom was dying of cancer. This was in 2004. To do a DNA sample. And then he showed me binders of tips, leads that they'd went on, and that was it. He never asked me any questions. He never asked my opinion. What is clear is that Barbara's mother talked to the police quite a bit, and when she did so, she went to the police station alone. Mom talked to them quite a bit, so I don't actually know how much they looked into it, you know. No, my mom always went up to the police station, and she never took me with or she talked to them over the phone. 
But I did find one person, a friend of Barbara's from back then, who does remember talking to someone in person, someone she thinks was a cop. And I figured out that this must have happened at the latest seven months after Barbara disappeared because this girl left North Dakota for good in November of that year. I'll note that this is a different Sandy than the one we've been hearing from previously. My name is Sandy Walker and I live in uh, Texas right now. And then the I, I don't know if it was the police or somebody talked to me. They were, I want to say they were probably wearing suits. I don't remember a uniform just asking me what I remembered like from her disappearance. Certainly it's not true that the police did nothing, but the question is what did they do and when? We also need to be realistic about memories 40 years after the fact. When I was working on season three of Dakota Spotlight about a tragic double homicide in Bismarck, North Dakota, I was able to review five binders full of police documents. I recall reading a detailed report a police officer had filed after interviewing a teenaged girl. When I reached out to that person 22 years later, she became annoyed with me and claimed she had never spoken to the police and wondered how I got her name in the first place. It was clear that she had spoken to the police. I had the police report right in front of me, but I got the distinct impression that she honestly could not remember talking to them. Of course, I could be wrong. Maybe she was lying to me and didn't want to be associated with the story. About a week after I spoke with Diane Latticer the first time, I spoke with her again, and then she told me that she did remember someone speaking to her. She just doesn't know who it was or when. It was not an interview, however, just a quick phone call. So you might have talked to the cops on the phone a few years later or something? No, probably about... I can't remember. I don't even know if it was a cop, actually. But I know I talked to somebody over the phone. Would have been in the 80s or 90s? or No, it would have been about, probably about six months after she disappeared. But I cannot, I cannot remember who it was. But I was like, oh, God, maybe I did talk to somebody. Because I was mad because they didn't talk to me right away. I was like, why don't you talk to me right away? And it didn't stand out in my head because it was like a very quick conversation. Right. Could it have been a journalist? Mm, I don't know. I don't think anybody ever wrote about it either. I don't think anybody cared except, you know, her friends. About three years ago, Kathy contacted the Williston Police Department to ask them if they would post Barbara's missing persons flyer on their website. At that point, a detective, a lieutenant, became interested in the Barbara Cotton case, and finally, Kathy was interviewed 37 years after her sister went missing. Kathy speaks very highly of this lieutenant, thankful that her sister's case is finally getting some much-needed attention. And since then, some other things have been happening, possibly due to this lieutenant's interest in the case. In the summer of 2019, Kent Cotton received a phone call from detectives, to his knowledge, the first time anyone ever spoke to him. And Diane was visited in person by, she believes, FBI agents in Oregon. They visited you in person? Yeah. Did they ask you any questions I have not asked you? That Nope, they basically asked me the same questions you did. And uh, that was it. I haven't heard from them guys either. And so, to sum this up somewhat, 
While the police told the press that they had followed every lead, the people I spoke to don't remember much of an investigation at all. I imagine that the truth lies somewhere in between. And while the people I spoke to agree that the police did not do enough, they are not in agreement on something else. What were people thinking in the very beginning? Did they think that Barbara was a runaway and might come back soon, or were they worried that she had been kidnapped or otherwise come in harm's way? Barbara's friends, Sandy and Diane, are adamant that nobody but the police thought Barbara was a runaway, and everyone else was frantically asking for help and in a panic. By the police, the police considered her to be a runaway, so they really didn't ask questions. Oh, they, I think they might have thought that, oh, yeah, she'll come home. You know, she's a runaway. They always come home. It's like, but I go, I remember saying she's, she wouldn't run away. That's why I don't even think they even bothered looking. They just considered her a runaway. And, you know, she was poor. Our family was not rich either, but maybe a little bit better off than her mom was. But I don't think they cared. Barbara's siblings, Kent and Kathy Cotton, give us other clues, however. Which brings me to something I've been thinking about. It seems that the closer we get to Louise Cotton, the more the runaway theory is embraced. For the most part, I felt like she ran away. You did? For quite a, yeah, for quite a few years, because her and my mom were fighting quite a bit back in that. My mom's first impression was Barb ran away. Diane disagrees. She doesn't believe Louise Cotton thought her daughter was, quote-unquote, just a runaway. She says she witnessed Louise in a panic. Oh, what, Louise? No, because she was panicked. Because remember, she came to my house looking for Barb. The, ne the next day, and she said, she told me, she goes, have you seen Barb? And I go, I haven't seen her all day. And I hadn't talked to her. And uh, she goes, well, I saw her last night. And... She hasn't come home. And I go, well, she didn't come here. And we didn't know where she was. So that was the very next day she was panicked looking for her. So. Louise Cotton is becoming a bit of a mystery to me. She talks about a boyfriend that nobody has ever met. Her kids seemed to be mostly in the dark for decades about the interaction she had with Barbara and this mystery man, and while others outside of the Cotton family felt Louise was very concerned, her own kids seemed to have adopted the runaway theory, at least for a while. A part of me wonders why the Williston PD never interviewed the kids. They were minors at the time. This is pretty far-fetched of me at the moment, I think, but were the cops just lazy, or did Louise not grant them access to her kids? Why did she always go to the police department alone? Did the police really never enter the Cotton home, or was such a visit planned when the kids were gone, perhaps at school? Who was Louise Cotton, anyway? We'll need to explore these questions and thoughts later on. After this short break, we'll get to know the 15-year-old Barbara Cotton a little better. Is it possible that her very big heart might have led her to her demise?
Recipe for a 40-year-young mystery. Take one missing 15-year-old girl, one unnamed boyfriend who either did or did not kill himself, and a mother you're not quite sure about somehow. Add five or six blocks of 1981 downtown Williston. Throw in a cheap Saturday night and toss generously with hearsay and fragmented memories. I didn't start this season with any realistic hopes of solving this riddle, but now, all of a sudden, I want to. And so, I reached out to a private investigator here in North Dakota, and we put some ideas together. We're going to do some investigating of our own. I was going to introduce you to her in the next episode, but then, two hours ago, I realized something. What if the Williston PD tells me nothing? What if they don't tell me the name of this mysterious boyfriend? And I realized I can't take you, dear listener, down this journey only to finish with, huh, never did figure out who that guy was. That's not acceptable storytelling. You would never forgive me, and rightfully so. And so, suddenly I thought to myself, you're two and a half episodes in, and you don't even know if you can deliver. And so I sort of panicked, and I realized I had to figure out who this guy was before moving on. There's no podcast without at least looking at this guy, the mysterious boyfriend who claims he watched Barbara walk from the Plainsman to Recreation Park. And so here's what I did just a couple hours ago. I'd heard that he killed himself soon after Barbara disappeared, so I started with 1981. And Kathy Cotton had a vague memory from her interview with the police three years ago, a fuzzy recollection. They told her the guy's first name. She wasn't sure about it, but at this point, I'd take anything. So, with a few different spellings of a first name, and by guessing his birth year and year of death, and having heard that he died in Montana, I sat down with Ancestry.com. And then suddenly, I had a list of men with that first name who died in 1981 at the ages of 18 to 21. Then I emailed the list to the private investigator. She checked names and I checked names. We must have sent 40 emails back and forth in 15 minutes. I don't know what databases she used, but I worked in newspapers.com. I searched for articles from Montana newspapers in 1981, one at a time with each name, adding the word suicide or jail cell and so on. And guess what? To my relief, I found him. I wasn't planning on introducing you to Carrie Abbey, the private investigator, in this episode, but I thought I'd share this now because it just happened. Hello. Hey. What a crazy ride this was. I don't yeah, even... I can't believe you found him just... Well, Ancestry.com. I don't even know if I can re... Yeah, no, it was uh, Ancestry.com, right? And then you were checking some stuff out. Yeah, I I really didn't believe that he was a person. <laughs> I mean, it, it was like moments before you sent the email with the where it named him. And I was like, I just don't think he's even a real person. And then... Nope, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> so you were you were thinking maybe the whole story was fake, like there never any ever was a guy, right? That's exactly it. Like I was thinking this is some I don't know why the mom would make this up, but I just thought the mom had made it up. Like all evidence suggested otherwise it felt like and then I mean, because how would nobody know about this boyfriend? How but how would no one have an answer at all. And then all of a sudden, there he is. I mean, at least there's this person that fits the description anyway. 
I was thinking just, you know, if she doesn't know, this could be a story she concocted for herself and didn't even realize it. I mean, we're pretty good at badly coping through things like this, you know, and rewriting our mental history. So, I mean, any little, anything that could have been perceived as uh, Barb having a boyfriend at the time, I could see Louise, like, in her, like, trauma, basically trying to find a coping mechanism and so I, I was thinking like this was completely just nonsense. Like whether it was intentional or not, it was just not anything to be real at all. I'm genuinely surprised. No, it did not sound good there for a while. I mean, no one knew heard seen her, seen him, heard of him. Yeah, to actually have a real name. And I'm surprised that you were able to access his social security number. Um what's even more I'll stop there for now because at that point I was mentally done finished, exhausted, and delighted, because this means that I'll be able to research this guy and tell you all about him, where he grew up, who his parents were, and anything else I can learn. But, dear listener, that will have to wait, as I'll need time to research him properly. And so, I guess we'll return to the rest of this podcast as I originally planned it. Can a kind heart kill you? Can the goodness of your own heart get you into trouble? It absolutely can. For example, four months before Barbara disappeared in El Salvador, four Catholic missionaries from the United States were raped and murdered. In 1996, six Red Cross workers were murdered in their sleep in Chechnya. They were nurses working for the Red Cross. A kind, giving heart is no guarantee you'll be safe. The more I learn about Barbara Cotton, the more I'm concerned that her big heart might have gotten her into trouble. The following audio clip is from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. It's a snippet from one of their educational videos about sex trafficking. Any child is vulnerable, right? Just by the nature of being a child or young teenager or older teenager, you're, you're vulnerable. But any extra factors that you throw in is going to make you more vulnerable. I'm sure the extra factors that come to mind is previous sexual abuse, homelessness, drug abuse, poverty, domestic violence, and so on. In Barbara Cotton's case, I'm wondering if her kind heart, in the end, was a risk factor. I'll let her siblings and friends give us a closer look at Barbara and let you be the judge. Well, she's a very pretty girl, very beautiful. Um, she had a big heart. She's very kind. It's probably too kind in some aspects, I guess. Barb was um, quiet until you got to know her. Um, she always put everybody else before her. Uh, um, if you needed something, she had it, uh, she'd give it to you. One time I was trying to save up for um, a cassette recorder. I couldn't raise up enough money to get it. I mean, we were still in grade school. She gave me the money to go get, go get it, and we rode bikes down to, I, I think it's a local grocery store or family thrift store or something. And picked it up and came back. She paid for it? Uh, most of it, I think. I think I had part of it, and she paid for most of it. Yeah. 
very generous. Um, she was so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. Yeah. Was was she soft spoken? Yes, she was. Even when she was mad. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember her getting mad at you and what it was about or anything? Oh, all the time. (laughs) 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 Shared a room all our life, you know. And, but, you know, when she'd get mad at you, it wasn't that bad. (laughs) (laughs) We were really close growing up, up until about, oh, sixth, well, seventh grade when I went to junior high and she was still in uh, grade school. (laughs) She was, I don't know, one of the kindest people I knew. One of the descriptions when I read back I might even have used was shy but I don't know if that's the perfect word for her because when it came to certain things she could be really brave (laughs) but it was more that she was you know I'm the loud mouth and she was the more quiet one yeah like I said she had a big heart but it's almost to a fault maybe I remember um a guy sleep sleeping on our couch one one day when I came home from school. My understanding of this guy was it was somebody that my sister had met that needed a place to crash for for a few hours, and that would be something my sister would do. I remember, I I do remember this one time and we were really young and we were talking about the Hells Angels and I was going on about how bad they were and all this stuff and she goes, no, they're just misunderstood, something to that effect. She was never scared like, and I'd be scared to walk in the dark and she'd always like, if I was scared and And after a while, we lived further apart. She would always walk me at least halfway home. She was never scared, and I would be. And I remember thinking, now she's got to turn around and walk all that way back again by herself, you know? And it never bothered her. She always just made me feel comfortable. Yeah, no problem, Sandy. I'll walk you. I just just remember her as being this soft-spoken fun you know she just was quiet but it was you know just fun to hang out with her because you know she just was a very nice person and would give you anything you know if she had it it was yours I just wish we would find out what would happen to her because it just I don't know it it has really has bothered me over the years and I think that her disappearance even probably affected how I raised my kids yeah I think so because I mean I was always afraid for them to be alone I never I never let him walk anywhere you know I mean you didn't see her fight or anything like that but she was tough like strong-willed I would say is a better word than tough when it came to like to walking home and stuff she was tougher than me I was the scaredy cat I have a lot of her belongings here at my house her childhood toys, her piggy banks, her her coins, you know, things of that nature. You know, things that 
I personally thought she would want childhood belongings that she would want if she ever, if she ever was found alive. Next time on Dakota Spotlight, private investigator Carrie Abbey and I are going to snoop around Barbara's neighborhood in 1981 and see what dangers might have been hiding behind their neighbor's curtains. We will also try to untangle two new surprises from this week. Number one, why did someone recently use Barbara's social security number in Minnesota? And number two, why was I able to locate, request, and receive a death certificate for Barbara Louise Cotton dated 1988. did live there at that address in the appropriate time. Or ran into some bad crowd in the park or something. And There's somebody in North Dakota actively using that name with the same date of birth that I have for the same, for this person here. And she kept telling me, I'm gonna burn in hell for what I did. I do believe he was convicted of that negligent homicide. I can't prove if these are the same person, if they're related. I have no idea. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications, researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, James Wallner. This season is dedicated to my daughters and to all daughters everywhere. Some music in this season, including the song you're listening to now, provided by North Dakota-born, former Wishick area resident and UND grad Isaac Turner of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and his seemingly infinite number of musical bands and projects. This band is named Wowza in Kalamazoo. We also heard a little from his bands Out and the Hollis Group. Search for Wowza, Out, and the Hollis Group on Bandcamp.com or see the links in the show notes. Thanks much, Isaac and friends. To learn more about Missing Kids, check out the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at missingkids.org. To contact me, shoot me an email at dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. If you're loving this season, please tell your friends in real life and on social media and give me a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. And why not come and join us at the Dakota Spotlight Facebook group? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Season 5, A Better Search for Barbara. Be safe, stay warm, and see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.